For 21 years, John Law was senior drama critic at The New Yorker, the longest and most glorious tenure in that illustrious magazine's history. He won countless awards uh, for his profiles of people such as Arthur Miller, Eli Kazan, Tony Kushner. His reviews ranged from tragedies such as Liza Minnelli to comedies such as Liza Minnelli. <laughs> he won a Tony Award for writing Elaine Stritch at Liberty and has written two plays, two novels, and I think six biographies, including Joe Orton, Dame Edna Average, and Tennessee Williams, is anybody spotting a theme? Yes, yes they are. He's here tonight to premiere his new collection. We're going on a joyride. Please welcome John Law. <laughs> Get into this thing. Get comfy. Yeah, a bit. Well, I should just sort of say that uh, the word profile in England doesn't mean this quite the same thing as it means in uh, for the New Yorker. A profile is a sort of exercise in mini biography, which takes about three to four months to write and runs between eight and ten thousand uh, words, and uh, it requires uh, the collaboration of the of the person you're dealing with. That said, here we go. Uh, I'm going to read a, a medley of uh, a few little tastes of the various things here. Okay. In my half century of theater going, I've seen grown ups stand on their seats to cheer keel over in the aisle after a punchline, throw coats onto a horseshoe stage for the parading star to step on, stuff handkerchiefs in their mouths to keep from laughing, and even briefly lose consciousness and collapse between seats. <laughs> that last ecstatic guy was me, blindsided by one of Dave Medna's illiberal salvos. <laughs> Part of the theater's big magic is its ability to exhilarate. It has the power to put us beside ourselves, to banish gravity, to call out of us our most buried feelings, to make the moment unforgettable, to kill time. That's its joy ride. Nowadays, theater criticism is on the decline. The media's obsession with lifestyles and celebrities hijacked the discussion of the dramatic craft and process. Thumbs up or down, are hardly good compasses by which the public can get its bearings on a writer and the work. As a result, the theatricals and the cultural history to which they contribute are largely left out of the public conversation. Who is Marlon Brando, a 20-something college-educated fact checker at The New Yorker asked me a while ago. Fire yeah, I was pretty amazed. <laughs> if we see a play today, it's usually in the context of no context. This depletes the audience's pleasure, as well as its sensibility. The more we know about the artists, the more we can appreciate their art. If we need better theater, and we do, we also need better audiences. As Tallulah Bankhead once told an avid would-be actress, if you really want to help the American theater, don't be an actress, darling. Be an audience. <laughs> <laughs> Since my mid-twenties, I've spent a good part of my professional life as an audience member. I grew up in the theater. I've written for the theater. I've helped to manage theaters. 
I have an abiding affection for the daring do of actors who are, in my eyes, athletes of the spirit. Ever since my sister Jane and I hung out between shows in my father's dusty Broadway dressing room, playing among the costumes and props in the murk of backstage, the theater has been associated in my mind with fun, mystery, and adventure. It's where I go to think, to travel to places and times I've never imagined, or to inhabit psychological situations that I would otherwise run a mile to avoid. Theater is where I can ponder the past and imagine the future. If I'm honest, it's also where I preserve the memory of my parents and their showbiz roots. Theater is an artisanal industry in a technological age. Everything about it goes against the grain of our distracted, fast-moving cultural moment. A play requires the audience to work, to contend with eloquence and with ambiguity, to think. In a film, the audience sees what the director wants it to see. With a live production, the audience must, must take more responsibility for meaning. The fact that theater is a minority art form doesn't minimize its cultural importance. Theater is still the only popular entertainment in which you can hear a writer's individual voice in stories undiluted by corporate agreement, in which language, in all its vulgar and vivacious permutations, is continually brought up to date, in which you can feel the carnal wallop of actors as they turn themselves inside out in the greatest show on earth, which is the show of human emotion. In a movie or television performance, uh, in a movie or on television, performance, uh, performances are repeatable and unvarying. They don't require an audience. By contrast, in the theater, the spectator's attention can make a significant difference to the quality of the event. The play was good, but the audience was a dismal failure, George, Ber George Bernard Shaw kidded on the square. The audience's job is to be open and alert to the world on stage. The actor's job is to be open and alert to the world of the play. In a real sense, the audience is a partner in the playmaking. Every performance is different, and so is every audience. Each night of a play is a new dance to the same tune. This dynamic exchange of energy is theater's particular piquancy. The synergy is humanizing. The paying customer enters as an individual, but becomes part of a communal event, a sort of entangled collective, in which both sides of the theatrical equation learn from the other's response. Your audience gives you everything you need, the legendary comedian Fanny Bryce once observed. There's no director who can direct you like an audience. In a time of terror, such as our time, the theater's promotion of ideas and feelings takes on a significant extra social valence. The terrorist's ambition is not just to kill people, but to kill thought. To divide the society against itself, and in doing so, force it to implode from within. As the general mood of retreat and the many political false steps of current Western democracies indicate, the strategy of terrorism is working better than we like to admit. Terrorism makes a spectacle of absurdity in which pain unmakes the world. Theater, which attempts to understand our pain, 
makes a spectacle of meaning and coherence. Now, more than ever, theater is not only a demonstration of courage, but an engineer of it. Thanks. Now, one of the things, one of the, the one of the joys of working for the New Yorker, and although I no longer write the drama criticism, I still write profiles. I've written over forty of them over twenty years. Uh, and this book is really uh, only about play, the playwrights and directors and uh, reviews of their productions to give the reader a sense of the synergy between the man or woman and the work. Uh, and one of the great things about The New Yorker is that it's like a magic carpet. If you want to go and write a profile of Mira Nair, you can go to India and go to Uganda. If you want to, if it's as this was, the 40th anniversary of Arthur Miller's uh, Death of a Salesman, well, Arthur Miller will let you go up and talk to him and hang out. On a crisp April weekend in 1948, Arthur Miller, then only 33 and enjoying the first flush of fame after the Broadway success of the previous year of All My Sons, waved goodbye to his first wife, Mary, and their two, chil two children in Brooklyn, and set off for Roxbury, Connecticut, where he intended to build a cabin on a hillock just behind a colonial house he'd recently purchased for the family, which stood at the aptly named crossroads of Tophet another name for hell, and gold mine. <laughs> it, was, it, was a perfect, it was a purely instinctive act, Miller, who long ago traded up from that first 44-acre property to a 400-acre spread on Painter Hill a few miles down the road, told me recently. I had never built a building in my life. Miller had a play in mind, too. His impulse for the cabin was to sit in the middle of it and shut the door and let things happen. All Miller knew about his new play was that it would be centered on a traveling salesman who would die at the end and the two of the lines were, Willie, it's all right, I came back. Words that to Miller spoke the whole disaster in a nutshell. He says, I mean, imagine a salesman who can't get, out, get past Yonkers. It's the end of the world. It's like an actor saying, it's all right, I can't speak. As he worked away on his cabin, he repeated the play's two lines like a kind of mantra. I kept saying, as soon as I get the roof on and the windows in, I'm gonna start this thing, he recalls. And indeed, I started on a morning in spring. Everything was starting to bud, beautiful weather. Miller had fashioned a desk out of an old door. He sat, down, uh, he, he sat down to it. His tools and nails were still stashed in a corner of the studio, which was as yet unpainted and smelled of raw wood. I started in the morning, went through the day, then had dinner. Then I went back there and worked till, I don't know, one or two o'clock in the morning, he says. It sort of unveiled itself. I was the stenographer. I could hear them. I could hear them literally. When Miller finally lay down to sleep that first night, he realized he'd been crying. My eyes still burned and my throat was sore from talking it all out and shouting and laughing, he later wrote in his autobiography, Time Bends. In one day, he had produced, almost intact, 
the first act of Death of a Salesman, which has since sold about 11 million copies, making it probably the most successful modern play ever published. The show, which is being put on somewhere in the world almost every day of the year, celebrates its 50th anniversary next month. Um, one of the great things about the great privileges of, the, of, of having been the New Yorker critic is that you, um, you, use it, you can use it as a bully pulpit. Uh, I, there were a couple of playwrights, Williams being one, uh, uh, Clifford Odets being another, that I wrote a lot about. And this playwright, I think, next to Williams and Miller, is the greatest playwright uh, of the 20th century. Uh, you probably don't know him too well, because he's, he's done here, but he's not done to the degree that he should be. His 20th century cycle, uh, it, which he spent his life writing, uh, captures the African-American experience uh, in each decade of uh, the century. Uh, he lived long enough to finish it, and it was my privilege to, it really showed me more about America. Uh, I learned by walking with August Wilson through Pittsburgh, where he's from. Uh, I really learned about the culture in a way that I could never have imagined. It was just, a, uh, and the fact that he died soon after finishing his la last uh, play means that this profile is really the only in-depth thing that exists, uh, although, of course, he gave many interviews. August Wilson's work is not much influenced by the canon of modern Western plays, almost none of which he has read or seen. I consider it a blessing that when I started writing plays in earnest in 1979, I had not read Chekhov, I hadn't read Ibsen, I hadn't read Tennessee Williams, Arthur Miller, or O'Neill, he says. By then, he had been writing poetry for 15 years and had read all the major American poets. It took me eight years to find my own voice as a poet. I didn't want to take eight years to find my voice as a playwright. To this day, as incredible as it seems, the exception, uh, with the exception of his own productions and a few of his friends, Wilson has seen only about a dozen plays. In the age of the soundbite, Wilson is the most endangered of rare birds, a storyteller. A Wilson tale takes about as long as a baseball game, which is to say a good deal longer than the average commercial play. Although audiences will happily watch sports contests into double overtime, the play of ideas and characters is another matter. In this arena, they are accustomed to what Shakespeare called the two hours traffic and Wilson has taken a lot of flack for his capaciousness. According to the Oxford Companion to American Theater, his plays lack a sense of tone and a legitimate sustained dramatic thrust. This criticism is, to my mind, unjust, but it reflects a distinctive cultural and artistic difference. Virtually all the seminal white post-war uh, plays, The Glass Menagerie, Long Day's Journey into Night, Death of a Salesman, revolve around the drama of American individualism. They mark a retreat from exterior into interior life. 
Wilson, however, dramatizes community. Community is the most valuable thing that you have in African-American culture, he explains. The individual good is always subverted to the good of the community. Wilson's plays are distinctive and longer because society, not just the psyche, is being mediated. They demonstrate the individual's interaction with the community, not his separation from it. In Wilson's plays, the white world is a major character that remains almost entirely offstage. Nonetheless, its presence is palpable. Its rules, its standards, its ownership are always pressing in on the black world and changing the flow of things. I look around and say, where's the barbed wire, Headley says in King Headley II, uh, which is his play about the 1980s observing that as a slave, he would have been worth $1,200, and now he's worth $350 an hour. They got everything else. They got me blocked in every other way. Where's the barbed wire? To which his sidekick replies, if you had barbed wire, you could cut through. You can't cut through having no job. Blacks know the spiritual truth of white America, Williams, Wilson says. We are living examples of America's hypocrisy. We know, we know white America better than white America knows us. Wilson's plays go some distance to make, uh, toward making up this deficiency. For white members of the audience, the experience of watching a Wilson work is often educational and humanizing. It's the eternal things in Williams's dramas, the arguments between fathers and sons, the longing for redemption, the dreams of winning, and the fear of losing, that reach across the footlights and link the black world to the white one, from which it is so profoundly separated and by which it is so profoundly defined. To the black world, Wilson's plays are witness. To the white world, they are news. This creates a fascinating racial conundrum, one first raised by James Baldwin. If I am not what I've been told I am, then it means that you're not what you thought you were either. And, uh, and uh, this last little bit for all you writers in the, in the, in the room, there, there are times when you, you, you just, it all just falls the way you want it and you just can't believe it. And um, the day after the producers opened in 2001, the, uh, the theater th sold 35,000 tickets in one day, a kind of record. And this is uh, the end of uh, a long review, uh, which accompanies a profile on the woman who directed the producers. About This is just a little something I said about Mel Brooks. As a foot soldier tromping through, Germ tromping through Germany at the uh, end of the Second World War, Brooks was the platoon cut up. He sang all the time and was never one to brood over the dead bodies around him or the prospect of becoming one of them. In a New Yorker profile in the late 70s, he mentioned to Kenneth Tynan that he used to tell the troops, nobody dies, it's all made up. <laughs> he explained, otherwise, We'd all get hysterical, and that kind of hysteria, it's not like sinking. It's like slowly taking on water, and that's the panic. 
Death is the enemy of everyone. Death is more of an enemy than a German soldier. If our president won't sign up for the Kyoto Agreement to protect the atmosphere, we can still sign up for the Brooks Agreement, which is, a, which is sure to protect our inner environment. The pact goes like this. We are polluted by grief and greed. Let's acknowledge it, defy it, meet the inevitable vulgar annihilation with careless vulgar rapture, and with the last measure of our energy and imagination, refuse darkness its dominion. That is the comic's bargain with the public. Laughter makes you lightheaded, but it also brings light. It's intoxicating, it works. I've signed on, and I can say without fear of contradiction that there are millions of other heartbroken souls in line right behind me. like the Comoros and Lemez. I know you don't want to hear that, but I just felt very, I, I almost got up and started waving a flag. I really wish I'd brought one. Um, uh, the, the, the book is incredible. Much of it's familiar to me um, for, as a, a New Yorker subscriber. Um, I, I spend a lot of time um, uh, reading the New Yorker, probably too long um, in my bathroom, um, which would be why I had to have a hemorrhoid removed last year, which I was going to call John Law, um, which possibly could be the greatest honour um, in the many honours that you have been afforded. Or possibly not. Well, He's <laughs> I, I, just, I didn't know this was going to come up, but Billy Wilder said, Billy Wilder said uh, he was getting an all-lifetime honour award, and he said, he said, you know, it's, it, awards are like hemorrhoids, you know, sooner or later every asshole gets one. <laughs> I got one. <laughs> um, so I wanted to talk at the very beginning you said about, about how audiences need to do their bit. And obviously this is a hugely attractive audience and they do look very good when they're thinking. Um, but but how, how can theatrical audiences be better? Do you, do you feel that they're not as good as, as they were somehow? Well, they can be better by being better informed. A lot of people, um, you're getting a lot of people uh, who come to certain kinds of shows if they're written by, like say, the Book of Mormon, that really haven't been to the theater very much. And that's great, you're getting a new audience. But the, the idea is, for me, uh, has been to, to try to give, even in reviews, to give people more information about the, the lore of the theater, the people, to, to keep the, these actors and the world of their work and their tradition alive because it, with the de decrease, uh, the decline of newspapers, and therefore, of course, theater reviewing, uh, there's not, there's not, people don't know. And uh, I just, uh, part of the, part of my excitement stems from the fact that the first book that I wrote was about my dad. Now my dad had a 50 year career on Broadway, besides being in the movies when you would know him as the Cowardly Lion and the Wizard of Oz. Um, and so he had, uh, he had a room full of review. I mean, uh, you, you know, a, a, the room had, a, a, my study could, hold all his reviews, almost all of them good, and none of them even approached his art or who he was. So he was a famous, 
but unseen. And one of my, my game is to try and see these people, to really look at them and what they do and what they are trying to express, that is get out of themselves, which is not usually the, the to ask different questions and thereby allow, put another lens in the audience's eyes to see the work. You know, so they come to it with more information uh, and, 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 and have another sense of it. A good example, not in this book, was Bill Hicks. Mm -hmm. uh, I, my son, who was then 16, he's now 40, said, Dad, you gotta come up here and look at this. It was midnight. And I, he blew me away, and I, the next night I went down, saw him, and said, would you be a, a, a profile subject? And he said, yes. I did the profile. When he was banned from the Letterman show, the, the New Yorker had, we didn't have a hook for the profile. I just wrote it because I thought he was a brilliant. We had our hook. So I wrote the piece, and the piece itself, and this is one of the powerful things about the New Yorker because it is read. It's not like other papers or magazines where you're looking at the ads or the fashion. It's really read. The, he wrote me afterwards that it explained the it, to a certain extent, the joke, his point of view to the American audience, and having half his comedy being about how he couldn't break into America, the New Yorker threw that open for him. And, in the, and he wasn't to live more than two years, but it was a great uh, thrill, because that's the job of, of, a, of, it seems to me, to not only look at the theater, but to look after it, to put him in the culture, and to explain it in a way that does honor to him. Let's talk about the process of, of, of writing those, those profiles because, uh, you know, with my journalist hat on, it seems to me to be this huge endeavour. And I wonder, like, you, have to, you have to like the person. You have to, you have to feel like, some kind of connection to well, them. Well, you know, that's, a great, that's a absolutely right. I don't write about people that I don't admire. I don't see the point. In fact, I don't see the point. If there's a big, I made a joke in the Telegraph uh, uh, the other day, but it's true. I, they I do mean, happen, jokes in the telegraph. Well, I hate, I said, I quote unquote myself here, I said I hate, you know, there's the, 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 the snarky attitude by certain journalists about actors, who sh uh, the, the snarky attitude by certain journalists who shall remain nameless, Lynn Barber. Uh, oh. uh, beca because I, I, I actually think it's ridiculous uh, to assume that these great performers and creators are not intelligent, have no sense of, are just narcissistic. Oh, that's news. Uh, you know, it, 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 you know to, to sustain a career over a lifetime is really hard, and it takes cunning, and it takes en endurance and real intelligence, and it just misses the point of the whole activity. And as the son of a performer, having lived in that world, I think it's a gallant world, and I want to and, and I, I see almost... Is it, is it still a gallant world? Yes, of course In it the is. age of kind of squalid celebrity a la Kardashian and but, all that. But I, I don't mean, interview those people. Yeah, okay. <laughs> no, but, but, but that's interesting that you don't because for you, they're, they're not part of the culture that you think is important. But I, I wonder, you know, you, you use that brilliant expression, athletes of the spirit. And I, there aren't many actors that I think now would be worthy of, of, of that I, term, I, I, I agree with it and it gets harder and harder. But I mean... What I found is, if you can, it, not everybody, not Mel Brooks said to me, I tried to write a profile of him 
uh, another one after the hit, uh, after the producers, and he said, John, I love what you do, I just don't want you doing it to me. <laughs> but in fact, I did recently, uh, it's very, when you really, what really good performers want to be seen, and they want their work to be seriously engaged with. So if they take the challenge, and it is a challenge, because the New Yorker profile re requires that they collaborate. I mean, I write to them and I say, it's not worth your time or mine uh, if you're going to just sort of do uh, half, uh, you know, not, not really take part in this. And so it, it becomes a collaboration and you, you, you can't. How many interviews would you do? How much time hours would you well, spend? Well, let me, let's take an a good example. A very, very satisfying result. Uh, for both of us was a, a profile I did not too long ago on Al Pacino. Mm -hmm. uh, and Pacino is a, an amazing performer and a very complicated man and a, a wonderful guy. But in interviewing him, I must have spent, oh, 10 hours. But in interviewing him, Pacino, Pacino circles the airport and lands eventually, but uh, but it's from an interview point of view, you're looking at the tape recorder go around, and you say, "Come on, Al, come on, get there, get there." And he, sometimes he does, sometimes he doesn't. But what I found was that I could email him, and if I emailed him, he would get up. He's late at night. He's sitting there. He gets an email, and he'll he started to talk, and he he said, "Jesus Christ, John, I could pay a psychiatrist for this." I mean, what are and, but I had, in the end, I had 40 emails from him. And out of that came something that resembles who he is. That is, you can get the sort of parameters of the sensibility, the pulse mm. of the guy, which is what I'm after. I, it, it, it all comes back to my father and so the, the, the fact that he wasn't seen. I mean, the, the, you, uh, if you... What did you see in your father that you felt other people didn't see? Oh, my gosh. I mean... A, a terror, panic. I mean, you can't. People. All, I, I, I mean, the 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 people who Elaine Stritch, who is an amazing, just an absolutely. I don't know if you, how many of you saw her show, our show, but she is a sensational performer. But the real acting accomplishment is to convince the world that she was a loosey goosey broad. You know, complete act, a complete. I mean, the only time she is not panic-struck is the two hours that she's on stage. <laughs> and that's because everything, she knows where everything is, and everything, there's, the only thing that she's doing that hasn't been attended to by someone else is breathe. I mean, it, she's, it, it's all been worked out, you know, so that's... Um, you were saying about Mel Brooks saying he loved what you did, he didn't want to do it to you. Um, the other it, way around. By the way, yes, of course, sorry. <laughs> uh, would, would it be possible for you to submit to yourself? Is that, is that a process that, that, that you would undergo? Well, a profile? Yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. sure. I'm a, I mean, I don't, you know, I have not, I, 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 I'm not sure I would do that. I have, I mean, people have occasionally writ, written articles. No, no. I, yeah, of course. I, I think it's a very delicate thing because you're really, you can't, get that agreement, you can, I, disagree, I, I disagree with Janet Malcolm and her, her, her idea about biography is that somebody has a, a story and they're going to tell it to you whether, no matter what. I don't agree with that. I mean, because I, I can see that as you, if, you read a, if you read a really good interview, 
that reveals something about the person. That's because the journalist has asked really good questions. And what I love to do is, if, in when, as much as possible, is take myself out of it. I, I really don't like, although I understand why, in England especially, I was sitting and waiting for X when they came in. He was wearing a this and that, you know. I mean, who cares what you were doing? <laughs> you know, I mean, it's a, ir totally irrelevant, if you know what I mean. Anyway, I don't like that. Um, but you don't like it? Uh, I get that. He doesn't like that. Um, and, and for that reason, there are tantalizingly few glimpses of, 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 of yourself in, in reviews and in profiles. But you know, at the, at the beginning of One Piece, and I can't remember which it was, you say, I found myself saying to your son, your mother right. and I are, are getting a divorce. And then you don't tell us any more about it. You know, you just, you know, it's like you're telling your son this monumental news and then you give us the review. And, and I've been piecing together bits of you through all of these profiles over the years. And I, you're well, elusive. You're well, hiding. That, that, that was one of my favorite plays, a uh, play that was over here. It was called The Retreat from Moscow. And it's about something which I didn't understand why I mentioned that. It was I did, my, uh, my, my, uh, my, raised, my wife and I separated when he was 11. And uh, I raised him. Uh, and uh, what I didn't understand, what, what he said to me when we went, into, we went in together to tell him this, and these were, his first words were, I don't want your unhappiness. And I never knew that he knew that we were unhappy because we were so happy around him, you know. And it, it started me, because I hadn't been analyzed at that point, to, I didn't realize that, of course, of course the, uh, the, the children pick all, up all the un unconscious or unstated things anyway. You know, it was startling. But that was in order, I used that piece of autobiographical information because that is what the theme of the play is about, about how a, a son lives out the projections of his parents. And, and that's why it's such a great, uh, William Nicholson wrote it, it's a brilliant play. And you've written uh, these you know, full-length biographies and, and, and lots of profiles about gay male playwrights or gay male directors. Um, uh, why do you keep returning to my people? Um, what is it about us that you find so fascinating? Gee, I thought they were talented. I didn't know. I, 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 yeah, and I'm not gay. No, and, uh, that's OK. Uh, OK. <laughs> Uh, but uh, I get frequently asked that, you know, uh, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. Um, but I, I do you th always say no? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> I, I don't. I can't answer that. I just find that the people that I've written about. I mean, in fact, prick up your ears. When I, when Alan Bennett wrote the screenplay, prick up your ears. After the first, we, we Alan and Stephen Frears and I formed a company to make a movie, and that's why I was. Interested to hear what you had to say, Jojo, about about your experience because my experience has been very variable. But one of the things that was really interesting about this is that I signed my copyright over to us, so we owned it, and nobody could break us or they'd lose it. But it took us a decade to get it on. But in the first year, Alan put a note through my door and said, "Can't do it. I've wasted your time. I've wasted the momentum of the book." He, he didn't. He, 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 at that time, Alan hadn't come out and was unhappy with Orton's aggressive promiscuity. And also, he didn't want to write, at that point in time, which was in the 80s, mm. a gay movie. And I said, but Alan, it's not about gay. It's about a marriage and envy in a marriage. And hey, 
I was living that. Mm. And so I said, well, you know, it's like, oh, it's like Auntie and me and all the, and, and then he wrote me into the script. <laughs> Yeah. And that I was, I, was, I and unfortunately he, Wally Shawn played that part, so I was uh, cast in the more buffoonish uh, <laughs> role. It's, it's an I incredible feel. book and it's an incredible film. If people haven't, I, I think so. It's, it's grown really, up. It's amazing. I'm going to take two very quick questions. And we're going to break My Little Pony. Yes. <laughs> What struck you the most about Bill Hicks when you were interviewing him that isn't immediately obvious to most people? Oh, that's a good question. But, you know, I've grown up with... Well, I can, I, can I, I'll just... You know, I've grown up with comedians, and there, there was something... The, the authentic comic, uh, as opposed to just a funny person, is someone who is inveterately transgressive. And he had the whiff of... He couldn't see a belt without hitting below it. <laughs> if you, it, it, it that, that, that's, that's sort of what, and, and you know, my, I, I asked him up to my house for tea, and my son, who came up, to, he came up, and we had tea, and my son, who was like 16, and in complete awe of Bill Hicks, he just came up and he looked at me, and he said, how can you say the things that you say? How, how do you have the bravery to do that? And you know what? Hicks didn't know what he was talking about because that was his DNA. That's who he is. He just he is set, his job was to say the unsayable, and he was a beautiful guy, but completely you know a space cadet, you know way out there, one way more, way out. We'll take there. one more question. Now. I can't remember where I saw a hand go up. Where did where was it? Oh, oh, okay. I'll ask it. Is there anybody that you've asked to do a profile that said no? Uh, a lot of people say no, but the one that said no with style was Meryl Streep, for a very interesting reason. She, she said that she didn't want, I mean, she wrote me like a two-page letter uh, about her process, and she said, look, the, uh, what it came down to was, she do, you'll notice that when Meryl Streep does a movie, she does all the PR, and she is very nice and entertaining, but you don't know any more at the end of it than you do at the beginning. Yeah. Um, so she's sort of boxing clever. But the real reason is that she only wants the audience to see the character and not to know anything about her. Uh, and that's, uh, and that, that's the reason. You know, She just doesn't want to mediate her personality. And the minute you become a personality and not on act, you know, you can't slip as easily into the variety of roles that she that she does. John Lahr, thank you for being here. Show us a little bit more about you. We'll be back in 20 minutes.